Welcome to episode 52 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Michael Smoller and Mitch Temple. Michael Smoller is the director of the Los Angeles Gallery, Blum and Poe, in Culver City. He's a practicing poet and collage artist who also founded the gallery High Energy Constructs in 2005, which was a performance and exhibition venue in Chinatown, L.A. Is there a difference between being a creative person and not? Is there a difference between poetry and, say, like, the news or being a poet in the morning when I'm writing poetry or reading poetry, but then when I have my day job going, am I not a poet? You know, poetry is not some high or low moment. It is. Mitch Temple is a visual artist and filmmaker who's currently based in L.A., and he founded the arts nonprofit Root Division in San Francisco when he was getting his MFA at the San Francisco Art Institute. It's easy to see yourself as an artist when you're in the studio. It's harder to see yourself as an artist when you're in front of a potential donor or when you're getting ice for an event. You have to kind of say an artist is always an artist, and you have to look at your peers that way and say, some of these skills transfer, some of these skills float around to different purposes, but they're artists and they're, and you know, it's great that we got those other skills too. Later in the show, we'll hear from poet Rebecca Wolf reading from her book, One Morning. And at the end of the show, we'll hear from Los Angeles musician, Jeremy Kennedy. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast and beyond. The thing about the podcast is that it's like a broken record that's been magically repaired. And you can listen to the people on K-Chung 1630 AM every third Sunday at 3 p.m. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio in the iTunes store. Once there, you can rate the show, review it. You can even subscribe to the podcast. Otherwise, you can find us at insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Michael Smoller and Mitch Temple, thanks for joining us on The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Michael, I've known your work... For a while, uh, your work as a poet and as a collage artist, um, what kind of work are you making these days? There's a bit of a hesitancy for me to say that I am making work because I am an arts professional and I know the amount of time and effort and labor that actually goes into this thing called making work that we all do. Um, So... You know, and there's there's also this strange crossroads that I have made up in my head that I crossed at one point or uh, took a direction in one point in my life of being an arts professional as, as opposed to an artist. And I don't think that actually ever happened in physical reality. Uh, but due to the amount of time that I have available in my life, uh, I don't make a lot of quote-unquote work. That said, I am, as, a, as much of a Luddite as I am, I'm very much using technology to uh, be creative and find a creative outlet. So very simply and easily, um, the way that I'm composing poetry nowadays is in my car through making uh, voice notes. Hopefully not while I'm driving, uh, but that's the way poetry comes. And then I compose that way. Uh, and it's it's taken me a while to go back and access those notes and those voice memos. But it's very similar to, I had a friend uh, back in the day who was a, a assistant to John Ashbery. And he said that the way, maybe this is a secret that John doesn't want out in the world, but here it is. 
he told me that the way that John writes is he basically just has scraps of paper and he writes down his, you know, magical phrases and whatnot. And he puts them in drawers. And then when it comes time to compose, he opens the drawers and takes all the scraps out. So it's a totally like a collage method, mm. which is the way that I've always written poetry. I'm just, you know, instead of actually using paper, I'm using technology. Mm. Um, now, as a collage artist, uh, I I started, um, again, a bit of a reticence to use Instagram, even though I'm a full-on addict now. Um, I just, I love images and I love to see other people producing images, whether it's of their kids or their food or, uh, you know, making, making art out of it. I started scanning my collages, my analog collages digitally so that they were, you know, digital, um, files, if you will. And then I would post them as a way, of course, to put your art out there and put it out there. And then I started using Layout, which is this uh, simple app that uh, I think is connected to Instagram somehow. And I started messing with them uh, in very simple ways, just, uh, you know, splitting it in half and what, like mirroring the image or turning one side upside down and the other side inside out and just playing with my own images. Yeah. And then I got a little bit bored with that and I started actually just screen grabbing and, and stealing images from Instagram um, and then using layout more and more and more. Hmm. So it's it's a continuous development, and uh, it's something that Mitch and I have been talking about recently. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit off mic before we started about Mitch, about your reaction to some of Michael's, some of these images that Michael's been talking about. Yeah, when I when I met Mike, it's um, we were at a cafe, and I said, "Hey, what are you making these days?" And he said, "Nothing." I'm like, "Well, no, that's not what I saw." Um, and the reason why I asked is because I've known Mike a long time, and and um, you know he's he's an artist who whose work I love. I have one of his pieces in my house. It's you know, and and I've always appreciated his aesthetic, and it was always a very considerate um, art making, and it was this kind of more traditionally composed collage that I could relate to. I, I loved his sense of composition and that sense of composition was blown up in these recent works. And it was one of these things where, you know, you see somebody that you know really well and whose art you're familiar with. And yet at the same time, you're like, wait a second, that's not the guy I know. And it was, it was a moment where you're both inspired by it. And you're also like, Oh no, you know, like I don't quite get this. Like, so I, that's why I wanted to talk to him at the cafe. Like, Hey, what's going on with this new work? You know, I, I'm seeing a lot of things different. Like, you want to know the friends you know well, right? So, and it seemed like he was doing it at a good clip and he was fluent with it. Like, he wasn't, you know, some friends when they're trying out something new, they just got to get, they got to get out of their rut and they're, and they're trying something that doesn't, doesn't work yeah. so well, but you got to give them that, that leash. Yeah. Uh, but with Michael, I'm like, hey, w something's going on here. And I felt like I was kind of missing a boat. Um, so that's what, uh, that's why I wanted to talk to him about. Well, t talk to us about it. Talk to us about space time. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I, when I was talking to Michael, he, I was like, this repetition. Because a lot of his collages, his more recent collages with, you know, and, I, and it makes sense when I hear how he, he talks about his process and, and working with these digital tools. There's a lot of repetition and folding and folding and folding. And, um, you know, I, I told him I was reading these, um, reading these books and one of it, um, in one of these books I read where there's this sixth sense that, um, 
that humans have to you know place themselves in this world right so they're combining their senses and they're stitching together multiple senses to kind of uh you know figure out their their logic in space and when all cultures have this um process where they repeat a mantra or a prayer and by that through that repetition they turn off um that function in the brain and that's that sensation that humans feel when they feel at one with the universe and at one with other people. They've turned off that part of their brain that's creating that differentiation. So when I saw Michael's work with all that kind of repetition, repetition, and kind of these visual mantras, um, it felt like that's something, you know, that's that direction he was going in. To create, like rewire your own brain to feel a sense of transcendence, right? Kind of that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. And whether that's, you know, aspirational or representative of, of, you know, where his mind was, I wasn't sure, you know, and I think that, you know, we can bang on technology be, because of all the time suck that it is and, and all the distraction it is. But, you know, some of these tools do offer those new possibilities where you can repeat and repeat and repeat and, and get into that kind of meditative so it begs the question, Michael, is that what you're, what you're working on? Is that, does that resonate? Absolutely. That, yeah. that must be by default. No, it was <laughs> yeah. good. And that's, I mean, I think that's what you get from a friendship, a creative friendship, you know, people that are both practitioners where you can, you know, understand each other in the artistic process. And it's not, it's not always, uh, you know, productivity and studio time. Mm. It's not always, um, you know, uh, being in the flow, sometimes there's like the rut and finding yourself and finding what you're trying to say and, and using the medium. Uh, so it was, it was really, you know, it was very refreshing and, and, um, yeah, it was comforting to, to have, have Mitch call me out on that. <laughs> so no, you are, you, you are making something obviously, and you're putting it out in the world. And it seems like you got, or from what you've said, it seems like you kind of got to that place by like a certain restriction on your time, right? Because of being an arts administrator. And I, we've we've said that you are, what is your position at Blum and Powell? I am a director, a director of the Los Angeles Gallery. Which is, which is no small thing. No small thing. And it uh, takes up a lot of time. And uh, we're in New York and Tokyo. And oftentimes uh, my associates and the, and the gallery owners are traveling. And so, you know, if I'm on email at 3 a.m. or 9 p.m., it's not strange. Right. And maybe we can get into talking a little bit more about Blum and Poe for people who, for some reason, haven't heard of it. But maybe for now, you could tell us more about that relationship between your professional time and your personal creative time for sure uh you know i read this is also um <laughs> i'm fully uh instagram addict uh but i but i read something through i think it's uh poetry magazine and they and they usually um post these really uh interesting just kind of like shell cracking uh quotes from writers of all types and there was something someone recently who said who was commenting on the difference between um the di kind of what i was saying before like there is there a difference between being a creative person and not is there a difference between poetry and say like the news or being a poet in the morning when i'm writing poetry or reading poetry but then when i have my day job going am i not a poet and he was basically saying i think it was a he uh the writer was basically saying that like you know, poetry is not some high or low moment. It is. And I know that kind of sounds maybe pretentious to say, but when you're, when you are in this 
yes and no, have and have not uh, conundrum of time and what you're giving your time to, it, it often feels that way. So I guess that's a long, that's a long and winded, uh, long winded roundabout way to say that it is a struggle. Uh, I think when I went to art school and when I was going to poetry school, there was no way in hell I wanted a day job that was going to take away from my, you know, ability to write and make. And it's okay that there is a day job. And I'm really blessed that I all of a sudden, you know, look back and I have this thing called a career. Uh, with a pretty uh, reputable um, uh, gallery in a in a silly and privileged, wonderful uh, industry, and uh, I really do enjoy working with people in the arts. I I, I enjoy uh, supporting and um, and listening to, and uh, and helping artists along, helping them like make their work and present the work in the world, and it's a it's a really like uh, you know win win situation for me. And so when you're at, you know, that day job, you would say that you are still a poet. Absolutely. That's the answer to that question, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. you know, Frank O'Hara, great poet, yeah. was also, you know, a curator at the, at the moment in New York. Um, you know, there's a lot of our mentors that you you work the job because you got to, like, put a roof over your head. Yeah, and eat food. And eat food. Yeah. And raise a family if <laughs> yeah. you choose to do that. And... Uh, you know, put clothes on your back and, and all of these great things that we get to do. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm going to hopefully go down being a, a creative person, a, a writer and a, and a collage artist and an arts professional and whatever the hell else I decide to do. Yeah. Is that track for you, Mitch? Is that, how's that totally lay with you and your same, same experience, same experience. Also, we're all in a time, you know, time crunch and time poverty environment, or as Bill Berkson said, I don't know when this time famine hit, but it took us all. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's where, on the flip side, one of the things I noticed, Mike, about your your job is it has made your eye super quick. Um, walking around and looking at art with you, you see a ton of art, and that's something that, um, you know, that's a benefit of you having a job that's related to art. I got a gig too. It's just not related to art, but, and we all do, you know, all of the artists that I know who are still, you know, still making art, they're subsidizing that with some, you know, make job or, or career. Um, and, but they still see themselves as an artist. I see, I see myself as an artist. It, um, and it informs everything else that I do, uh, in a good way. And I think that also to Mike's point, all that time crunch, it did, uh, create limitations that led to new artistic impulses and new artistic production. Um, similar to Michael, uh, you know, I jumped on these digital tools because my time was pinched. I used to paint large oil paintings that needed, you know, two weeks to work out in concentrated time. That time infrastructure is not there anymore. And, you know, you could, you could grieve that or you could say, okay, what other ideas can I do and what other mediums? And, um, you know, with some of these digital tools, it's fun to work out so many more ideas quickly or go into different directions that you wouldn't have done um, if you were committed to, you know, a large oil painting for two weeks or something like that. So um, there are limitations, but there's, you know, brave new frontiers because of them. Mitch, do you want to talk about the digital medium that you're working with now? And I'm, I'm also interested. I don't know if we talked about this uh, 
off mic, like how how much time you do spend on say creating these these moving compositions. I spend about a, an hour every morning um, working digitally. This is kind of like my practice. Um, you know, and you said you're making gifs, yeah? Yeah, I'm making gifs. Um, so I was doing these digital collages, uh, and then an art buddy of mine, uh, Nikita, said, "Hey, man, you should start making these gifs." And I'm like, "All right." Um, he just suggested it, and and I just wanted to experiment with it. And so these gifs are, um, I have a experimental movie that I'm going to make this summer. And in the meantime, while I'm trying to put together all the resources to make an experimental movie. What I started doing was doing these little gifts um, that are kind of tangential to that storyline. So I might take a character and imagine, you know, what their background was like, or imagine a, a different incident that I'd never cover in the in the larger narrative. Mm-hmm. And, and then within these gifts, I can, you know, let my imagination run with a certain character or a certain situation that's not on the page, but is related to that larger larger story. Yeah, you're working out the material. That that you may not cover in the main thing, but it's actually you won't get it. it like it helps you get it's to in the, the universe, to the material. It's yeah. in the world. It right, keeps yeah. and it keeps my imagination in that universe. So, um, so yeah, every morning I jump on and uh, jump on a, a mobile device of some unnamed brand and <laughs> and uh, open up a few apps. And usually that's what it is. It's combining a, a few different apps. I my friend Tobin Nichols. He made an app called Nose Picks. Uh, which I use every now and again. It's great. So I'll give that endorsement. Uh, and then there's a lot of great ones that you can just, you know, Sketchbook Pro and Pixelmator and, and GIFX and all these ones. You can, you know, I'm a, I'm not a tech guy, uh, but that's one of the things that technology has dropped down to be so user-friendly that we can all pick up these tools and make some cool things. You're listening to The People on K Chung, 1630 AM. We'll return to our conversation with Michael Smoller and Mitch Temple in a few minutes, but first, a new installment of Notes from the People. We're dipping back into the Machine Project archive to hear from poet Rebecca Wolf reading from her recent book, One Morning, published by Wave Press in 2015. You should pick up a copy over at wavepoetry.com. For sure. This recording is from the Mystery Theater at Machine Project on March 3rd, 2015, and you can find out more about Machine Project at machineproject.com start a book start a book haven't finished it yet don't finish it it's a low class thing in the lower classes you can do anything you need to meet your needs ask me to say I love you Up here, appetite shuts down when death instinct rears, tall as a man, tall as your throat. I used to have nothing to write about, yet anyway I wrote. Now with the manger all full of angry and hungry animals, gums bared in the night, Haggard error in my belt, whipping, commencing, laterally, bilaterally, unilaterally. Your sincerity pales beside my insincerity. He told me the shock had not yet worn off. I just thought it had, but it had not nearly 
I was still in shock. Did I make you laugh, I said. What does not kill us makes us strong. Discuss. It's a low-class problem, things happening for a reason. The journey of life, the need for God's o'ershadowing hand to wipe, to scoop. I need it now. That's why I write so. I write so to put some of that throne energy into practice. Put your enemy on a throne and bring him from far off the gifts of fruit, foreign to his lips. Bring him the colors he's never seen, azure the name of the longest day he never lived in your love you never gave to him. I love these stretched feelings of the fucked legs. How many everywhere can you say you love? Here's a song I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with you and me, babe. I would just read anything. Now the only thing that makes me, me, all the learning from texts, from text dedicated, tangential material, how Romanian peasantry, how they cook their pigs, as long as it's well-written, slaughter their pigs, cook their noodles, as long as I can read it. I hate the way you close the shades. It's so low class. I hate the way you lower your voice. It's so middle class at tables in restaurants and cafes. If you wait long enough and try hard enough, you will get into it, the book. Anywhere you are, it is possible to become absorbed in your reading. And um, this poem is called The Big Pick is a Total Art Shot. High def selfie in the sunstroke glass that conveniently frames and reflects. Making art, I'm so lithe, I'm a fucking sylph. Then on the floor, not a moment later, child's pose, write another abject tableau of lineation and jam those long limbs, a cave for a dark little self to make dark little faces. Oh no, I'm learning from my students. This pose, oh no, I'm done with mastery. That leaves big me sadly free of all immunity. But how? Butter is a food group in the dark country. Bread, too sour to believe. It's wry, it's unbelievable. Antidepressants of food, a group here in the dark lands, a cave. But how can you? 
everything disorganizes once you leave mastery behind. It's not a mystery. It's mastery. Or is that when, is that time or space? You're on the floor. You're in the window. You're just like everybody else. But how can you make it without self-congratulation? I'm just literally going to follow this river to find my way back to the center. There is literally a gas truck in my path, excruciatingly, slowly backing up. Repeat, repeat, you're just like everybody else. Repeat, repeat, you're just like everybody else. Fuck that snowflake in its ballerina, asshole, it will melt. Now let's return to our conversation with Michael Smoller and Mitch Temple. Start with telling us what Root Division is. Okay. Um, so Root Division is an art nonprofit in San Francisco. Uh, we were in the mission for many, many years, and we recently moved to just south of the market on, on Mission Street. Um, and it provides subsidized studio space to emerging artists in uh, San Francisco. And in exchange for the, uh, the space, artists provide or give back to us 12 hours of community service a month. With those hours, we produce a monthly art exhibition for emerging artists. So we're giving artists in, in the Bay Area a chance to show their work. Um, we're also doing free after-school art classes to, to um, kids in the neighborhood. We serve... Um, we probably serve more now, but uh, at the at you know we serve probably over 500 kids now uh, in and around San Francisco, and then we also do adult education courses, so affordable courses for for um, adults up there and try and get them active in the art scene. And so yeah, uh, this was an idea that uh, was born uh, while I was in grad school at San Francisco Art Institute. It was kind of during that first dot com boom when all of the artists were getting pushed out of the city. You know, we had a couple of students who were there for a couple of months and just said, I, I can't stay. I can't find anything to rent. And I had done a couple of um, fundraising events for other nonprofits. Uh, and then a buddy of mine, uh, Dennis McNulty said, Hey man, why don't you just get some free space for artists? And I was like, well, there's a need for that, but that's a very, that's not a very compelling argument for it. Um, <laughs> So uh, the, Dennis and I got together and there was another, um, Nathan Suter is the other founder and he was running the um, shows in, uh, in the Diego Rivera Gallery. And he and I had been in a couple of classes. He said, this sounds like a great idea. So Nathan and I went um, and worked with Kate Eilertson, who was at San Francisco Art Institute at the time, but had, is uh, very active in the art scene and the nonprofit scene in the Bay Area. And she had been for years and years and years, former executive director of Intersection for the Arts. And mm. um, and so she, under her tutelage, we kind of drafted this business plan, got um, 501c3 sponsorship, set up our own 501c3 and launched these programs. So, and they've been going strong for 15, 16 years now. Um, we have a very capable executive director named Michelle Mansour. Um, all of not all, but uh, by and large, it's been run by artists, um, which is, I think, a uh, a notable thing. You know, artists get a bad rap as being this, these, you know, kind of like oh, irresponsible um, miscreants or anything, but uh, super productive people uh, who came together and put this together for a really strong and focused social cause. So, um, 
Yeah. And that and so it sounds like that grew out of your practice in a way. Almost practically, right at the time like uh yeah, artist I, spaces were disappearing, but I artist mean, space were disappearing, yeah. and there, I, I got to give credit to Janice Lipson. She was a film teacher there, uh, and a really strong advocate for artists and art, um, and art. And she actually got fired. Um, I feel very unfairly by San Francisco Art Institute. I love the school; they got that one wrong. And she had a class called "Artists as an Endangered Species," and she brought a lot of these factors to light as far as you know what's sustainable for artists. What what do what do artists need? Um, and you know, she was the one who kind of opened my eyes that some of these other skills that I have, I can put to use, um, in, in a direction that could benefit artists and could benefit the community and, and benefit art audiences too. And what, how did, if I may ask, how did that experience of kind of taking on a, a large administrative role for, you know, this kind of, uh, institution that you created uh how did that change like your work in in the studio or you know on on a canvas or yeah etc um it was um it was it it put a lot of pressure on my on my artwork um it because it took time from the studio uh it informed my artwork to be more social and for me it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that you know it's easy to see yourself as an artist when you're in the studio it's harder to see yourself as an artist when you're in front of a potential donor or when you're getting ice for an event. And that informed my view of myself because you have to kind of come to grips with, you know, back to poetry is, you know, poetry is always poetry. You have to kind of say an artist is always an artist and you have to look at your peers that way and say, yeah, right now, you know, David Johnson might be putting up walls for the next exhibition, but the guy's a really talented neon artist. And, um, you know, some of these skills transfer, some of these skills float around to different purposes, but they're artists and they're, and, you know, it's great that we got those other skills too. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's any real need when you think about it to separate the administrative duties, even if you're just working for yourself, i.e. like maintaining your own artist website or trying to get shows or, interacting with doing studio visits with other artists like that's all that's all administrative work in a way and there's not even if you're not attached to an institution or whatever it's like that's not like striped shirt baguette like that's right jackson pollocking it up like you're you're doing administrative work especially that last example you gave about being in in somebody else's studio giving studio visits Mm -hmm. you know like having and i hated the word community hated it um, when I was when I was putting together um, Root Division, because it's such a fluffy word that's a grant proposal word. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, being in in studios is is a critical part of being an artist. And Michael's um, our mutual friend Bill Berkson, he was a huge advocate of that, and he was a and he was a huge supporter of Root Division as well. Um, and he came in and railed at me one time when I was in grad school because he goes. I see your work. You're not looking at other people's work and they're not looking at yours. Like get, get in Pablo's studio, get in Marianne's studio, like get in Michelle's studio, get in, you know, he was like, you guys are all, you guys are all hermetically sealed. Get out. And, and you know, he, he pointed out that the New York art scene at that time is 300 people, Hmm. but those 300 people always made time to get in each other's studios, to play poker with each other, you know, to go out to the beach together, you know, all that other stuff, that's being an artist. I feel like artists uh, oftentimes are, are 
encouraged to like find their own thing and the idea that you're going to be <laughs> going into each other's studios and kind of like being influenced by the other artists that are around you in many ways that's like frowned upon like oh well, you're just idea, doing the idea you know of I mean? the bubble is like yeah. you don't it's like oh you're in your little bubble with just your with just your artist friends but that's that's great you know that's a that's a productive that's a productive bubble yeah. not to say you shouldn't go out and do other things but like that like like you're saying, like being in, creating and being in a community of artists, like is a completely necessary thing. Right? Absolutely necessary. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you look at any any thriving uh, art scene or historical movement or cultural center. It's where all the poets live. It's where the painters live. It's where things are happening. It is community is a fluffy word. Yeah, but it's real deal, especially nowadays when. You know, everything in between every community is a mall and a bank and a church and a high rise ad nauseum. And I think one of the reasons why Los Angeles is having like a real rise right now is because the last 50 years, there's been nothing but an arts community here. The teachers that we all studied with, CalArts, Ed Ruscha, Baldessari, Paul McCarthy, Mike Kelly until he passed, all of these people stayed here and they stayed here no matter what and they were artists no matter what and they gave back and they fostered all of these new generations which then passed it on passed it on passed it on and even though at times like los angeles though it is an art destination it's like really fought hard to become that yeah and so it's like it would have been easier to leave southern california and go to new york city yeah we're still a little provincial even yeah we are still even now yeah yeah and poetry wise uh Especially because San Francisco is so much closer. It'd be easy if you're a poet to be like, well, probably I should just go to San Francisco, right? right. But no, it's like if you choose to stay here, that's a, that is a decision that, that is a mark. It means something, I think, over uh, a certain amount of time. Now, my poetry has always thrived when I've been around other poets. Sure. That's, yeah, that's basically it. I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm talking about poetry with other poets. I'm reading their poetry. And it's contagious. And when I'm in a bubble, then exactly what Bill said, nobody's nobody's seeing, hearing uh, what I'm saying, and I'm not seeing, hearing what other people are saying. Yeah, I mean, you can also, like, you can go and see, like, all the good stuff that other people are doing. But, like, the the other good part of it is you can go see people, like, completely fucking up you know (laughs) oh those are those are the most inspiring shows i won't say that i retract that i will say you can go see stuff that you don't like or is not like your to your taste or uh to the method that you would use or whatever and that that is like equally as valuable right absolutely like i wouldn't do it this way this is insane yeah and it's not a it's not a point your finger shame shame like hey good on you you got that show i i hate that stuff and you go back and you take those ideas into your studio and they're generative you right. know there's yeah. there's just as much you know good fuel from trying to destroy you know some somebody else's argument is making your own so i mean i i think that's a good way to get out of rut occasionally as well um i also want to say that you know i I laugh because I don't like that word community, but the, <laughs> the the main thing is just getting it specific, right? And we're talking about LA as a community, but we all laugh about Instagram and you know the that scarcity of time that it creates or whatever. However, 
there are those opportunities to have and build those other specific communities with artists you never would have known, seen, or anything. You know, like there's this really talented artist in Israel that I love her work. You know, I follow her. I actually give it time and attention. And that just doesn't, that just wouldn't happen, you know, without that. So, you know, I get it that, that it's tough. You know, Instagram creates this kind of like, you know, pressure to skip and just do something simple like like but you know i've created a dialogue with a couple other artists that you know i'll send them a message i'll send them a note hey you know like what's this all about so i think that as long as that idea of community is kind of well defined and it and it um creates conversation i think that's kind of a metric yeah you know what i'm gonna uh somewhat switch topics and kind of take it back a little bit but uh the way that i met michael and i think um this is pertains to you as well, Mitch, but first at High Energy Constructs in Chinatown. We should say that High Energy Constructs is a gallery that you in, open with in, Justin with Veach. Justin Veach in Chinatown, yep. and yeah. uh, it's now where the Institute for Figuring is. Right. Um, tell us about your, because you kind of landed in LA, you know, to start that space, and I, I recall it as creating a quite an interesting community at the time. But uh, tell us a bit about that experience and not sorry to roll back the clocks a little bit that way, but no, it's 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 definitely uh, pertinent because uh, because I have like really great fond memories of it. Uh, also a lot of uh, black black spots of uh, lack of memory. Um, but I think uh, you know, when I met Justin, we were working at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Boulder, and I was running the exhibition program, and he was doing the theatrical program there. It was a small building in Boulder uh, where we both had gone to Naropa for school and uh, talk about a community that was fully, like, uh, a very tight-knit community. And um, we just learned so much so soon as youngsters that right away we had this you know, we had the baton in our hands and we were thinking, well, we can, we can just do this. We don't have to, you know, slave away at whatever jobs again, uh, in order to like do what we want to do. And so we thought of this, like doing a performance slash exhibition space. And, uh, we were on a road trip coming back from Colorado. We did the spiral jetty and, uh, came back to LA to kind of, uh, clear out my head and Justin was just finishing up at Cal Arts and he got a phone call from a friend who had just leased a space in Chinatown and he realized maybe it was a mistake. So he's got a five-year lease. We went down there to look at it, look at it and uh, we just kind of looked at each other afterwards and we thought, is this, is this it? Like, should we just throw down and move into Chinatown? And it was a ready-made international uh audience there there were all all of these galleries uh that were starting to do stuff and that have grown uh you know to be legitimate uh you know art world uh gallerists dealers uh you name it curators and uh and so the the mantra talk about community again the mantra was if you build it they will come which is this cliche thing but that was that was it and it was a exhibition and performance venue and we lived in the back, which helped, and 
maybe didn't help the situation uh, because if you were uh, in Chinatown yeah. at 1030 at night, you could knock on my door. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. And, yes, you did. And, yeah. and so uh, and you were across the, across the street at, at Beta I was level doing well. stuff at Beta Level at the time. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that was fully a community there. I mean, we were yeah. like night rats. Uh, yeah. It was it was actually really exciting and um, and a great time in my life. Um, so yeah, I opened the doors, and six months into it, Justin decided he didn't want to he didn't want to do it anymore. So I had left my life in New York, and here I had this you know gallery, this performance space, uh, and um, just always made sure to like if we were going to have an exhibition opening that we were going to have like a band play or a performance artist do a performance, just so that it wasn't just you know just people a, milling about looking at art, yeah, with, and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, uh, we we had a lot of poetry readings in Chinatown. Um, lots of social events, and uh, it and I met a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. You're listening to the People on K Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons, and I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find the People on iTunes by searching the iTunes Store for the People Radio, or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the People at the top of the page. And now back to our conversation with Michael Smoller and Mitch Temple. I think it's kind of interesting. I want to ask Michael because, you know, we're talking about artist run space and um, this kind of identity of an artist. And, you know, I've always thought that it's kind of interesting knowing you personally and before you got the job that here you are as a collage artist and as a poet. And now here you are also as a director of a major gallery. I mean, and in LA terms, I'm sure, you know, I know there's bigger galleries, but Blum and Poe, I mean, it's a, it's a big prestigious gallery and kind of how that has uh, affected, you know, how you see the art world and how you see artists and all the different types of artists that you've worked with. Yeah, for sure. That's a loaded, that's a loaded, that's a, <laughs> that's a loaded topic. Um, I mean, what it has allowed me to do is see that there is not just one art world. Uh, There is, of course, the capital A art world and some very successful galleries and artists and curators that work amidst that. Uh, But then it's also, you know, we were talking a little bit off mic about being, uh, you know, a student or going to art school or going to school for poetry which uh, I remember when I passed in my undergrad thesis, um, the uh, the head of the program had said, well, what are you going to do now, Michael? And I thought, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, we kind of chuckled about that. And he said, after two years of uh, taking loans out and, and working and, you know, earning this this degree, he said, yes, getting a degree in poetry is not the best career choice. <laughs> And I think he chuckled uh, at that more than I did. Um, but, you know, then there, then there is this thing. You get this degree or you uh, come out of a, a program and, and it is, you know, the question is now, now what and how do I exist this way? Uh, there's only so much room at the top of the, say, you know, pedestal of people that are getting the poets and the writers that are getting published and the same goes with uh, the artists after you get out of uh, art school. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I have come to realize that there are many uh, many levels, m- many economies to being an artist, being a creative person. And, uh, and, and, and they're all okay. 
I think as long as you're able to do what you uh, what you love and you're able to uh, put your voice out there and uh, maybe get paid for it, I don't know, uh, but you're able to maintain your practice, like that is success. That's a successful artist to me, and um, and I do and I do see that you know the the art world that I work in is very much a a business, and uh, it doesn't come overnight, and so it's it's one of those things that you have to come back to of of doing this until until the end of time or until whatever it takes to achieve whatever you want to achieve um i don't know if i'm saying anything really <laughs> no you you are i mean maybe for uh, because some people listen to the show who aren't artists or or they're not in a big city big art city like los angeles maybe tell tell us what like describe a couple or Three or four of these different art worlds, these art economies that exist. Yeah, well, then it, it does. It it comes down to uh, it's a it's a bit of a mirror of the world that we live in, which is unfortunately right now the haves and the have-nots uh, when it comes down to economy and and existence and survival. And that middle class, the disappearing middle class, is happening everywhere, and it's it's actually really unfortunate. Uh, you see a lot of these artist-run spaces that are popping up and, and doing something for a year or two years, but then they kind of go away. Uh, I was just talking with uh, with some younger uh, artists who are, are doing an artist-run space here, and they're kind of at that point right now of, wow, do we grow and become uh, a real gallery, or you know, do we kind of just fizzle out and focus on our own careers because they're also you know, trying to get their own careers going. And, uh, and it really does all come down to finances, which is uh, an unfortunate thing. But then at the same turn of the coin, no pun intended, that's what, you know, makes you work that much harder to, to grow. Uh, you know, David Kordansky went to CalArts and he was an artist and, uh, you know, he worked hard and opened up his gallery. And, you know, now he's one of the top, you know, prominent dealers in L.A., I don't know if he's would call it what he started as an artist run space, but in its very early seeds, I think it was. Uh, there was a couple, you know, a couple other people involved, and uh, they were doing similar things that that High Energy was doing yeah. uh, as far as having performances and readings, and you know, doing something a little bit more alternative. Of course, you know, David is a is a great art dealer as well, and he's he's grown to be that. Um, so there are people out there that have uh, that are models for that sort of thing, uh, but for the most part, like today's world, as we all know, it's it is difficult to survive at any level, whether it's the highest level or you know just to maintain your practice. But I think what you were talking about, like the artist-run space that might pop up for a year or two, I think it's also important to always remember and i and i think of this and if you're trying to start a space like to think of it as like so what if you do two great years of great programming and then you go away well you know what then you did two great years of great programming for sure you know i mean i think that there's like uh there's goals that you might set that aren't necessarily like uh you know uh rocketing into Kordansky level even I agree uh, I agree with you know that what a I'm lot. saying like, yeah there's yeah. a lot of, of different there's a wide range of other goals that spaces and artists can have and I think that you know when Michael's talking about the haves and have-nots one of the problems with a lot of artists is then they get fixed into this mindset 
um, that's largely driven by commercial art spaces. And there's a lot of other options besides commercial art spaces. You know, there's nonprofit spaces or alternative spaces, pop-up spaces. And then it becomes a question of like, what audience do you want and, and what your art is about? You know, your art has a, it, you know, your art has an audience out there, figure out who that audience is and go and get to them. And that's not necessarily through a commercial space. And, and if you got a great idea for, for a spot and, and to exhibit some art, your goals might not be making a profit. You yeah. know, it's, that's, that's not the, that's not the Holy grail for everybody. And for that matter, it, it's, you know, we're also uh, LA centric or city, you know, city, uh, it's the word I'm looking for, like dependent upon a certain city and a certain economy. Uh, you know, there's if you want to be a successful artist in Detroit, like that's happening or Portland yeah. or Phoenix. I mean, you, or Pittsburgh, you, you can do it yeah. anywhere and that's OK. And I have actually there's a lot of people that I know that have, you know, come come to art school in L.A., done that, come out, maybe been in a couple group shows and they're not cutting it. And they go back and they move to another, you know, smaller locale. And they are doing very well, you know, they're showing and, uh, and they're happy and they have studio practices. That also is, you know, a version of being successful and being able to achieve and, and do what you want to do. And also maybe buy a house. Absolutely. We're, what? Uh, I know. It's in San Antonio. You can do it, I'm sure. Real estate <laughs> yeah. is a lot more affordable. Yeah. yeah. But that is, I mean, that is, I'm joking a little bit, but that is like one of the things to consider. Are you going to, are you going to stick it out for the art economy in Los Angeles with certain aspirations you have to achieve a certain level of attention or success in a city like Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco or Chicago or whatever, or, uh, and then, you know, rent for the rest of your life uh, and be broke at the end of every month? Or will you you know, Mitch, like you were saying, like move to, you know, go to a place that is not maybe the one of the centers of the art world, as it were, in 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 America. But there's a thriving art community there. And you can also like buy a house and like, you go know, to Marfa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. It, it. you got to know you got to get those structures that support your artistic temperament. And well, those structures might be, yeah. you know in Cincinnati or whatever, like we're all made of different things. We have different impulses. We're inspired by different situations. And, and, you know, I, I'll throw the, the wine term, if I could say it, terroir, um, you know, where you're affected by all of these different things. And I'm surprised that people are healthy artists in Los Angeles. I am because I'm chaotic and, you know, Los Angeles is built on chaos. So I love that, but you know, it's not for everyone. Go to where it's for you. Well, I would also say that the uh, the whole thing of the haves and the have-nots, it's it's also the old joke. There's two kinds of people in this world. You know, it's like actually there's two kinds of people. There's, there's the people who believe there's two kinds of people in this world, <laughs> and then there's the other people. So, I mean, the thing that we're not talking about is like that 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 um, that dichotomy is false as well. It's like there we know that yeah. uh, we're sitting here right now. There's so many other levels, and I think that's kind of what we're talking about. But, but, uh, but acknowledging that you don't have to follow or just, or just uh, take that whole, you know, haves have nots kind of yeah thing, and that you might be able to find other ways in the world, even in Los Angeles, um, and even in the LA art world is uh, for sure you know, important to remember. Like for sure, you know, but we can do all kinds of things 
in that uh, in that in between space, even if we think that in between space is shrinking, you know, there's still opportunities. Agreed. To make the world you want to make. Sorry, preaching to the choir. I want to give a um, plug to another um, really crafty dealer, Paul Soto, who mm-hmm. does Parkview in Koreatown. Yeah. And he's turned his uh, apartment into a really like beautiful uh, non-apartment-like uh, yeah. exhibition space. It's the most gallery-like apartment gallery you will ever set foot in. Absolutely. It's amazing. It's great. And that, yeah. to me, is coming out of almost a non-American economy where you can see this happening in South America, in Europe, where people are just doing it because that's what they have. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about Bill Berkson. You guys have referenced Bill Berkson, but can you guys give our audience members like a little bit of a primer on on Bill Berkson, like a short well that's primer. how that's how we know each other so yeah sure. every time yeah. Mike Michael and I see each other he, he he comes up um he was a professor at the San Francisco Art Institute where I went to grad school and um he came up in the 50s and 60s in New York he was born and raised in New York City and uh, you know, his best friend was Frank O'Hara. And so he was kind of the younger generation of that New York school um, and came out west, kind of followed the beats out west and um, taught at San Francisco Art Institute as a as a poet and art critic. So he made his made his living as an art critic um, in New York and, hmm. and San Francisco. Um, and the most brilliant eyes you'd ever want in your studio. Um unbelievably gorgeous poetry uh and just the most beautiful man and and talk about sort of a lifestyle that i would emulate he always had time to go into studios and he was at all art openings and and poetry readings and was sort of this gregarious man about town and um so yeah that's that's kind of the glue that that bound me and michael smaller early i'm i'm uh screening a short documentary and one of the themes that he um talks about in the film is hey you know all of these different art forms should inform your art practice. So the poets should be talking to the dancers, should be talking to the painters. So Michael Smoller is going to be the um, guest poet who's going to lead us off. He and his buddy Aram Saroyan are Amazing, both yeah. going to be uh, reading a poetry or reading their poetry in one of Bill's poems each. So please come out to that. When is that again? June 25th, Sunday at Walter Maciel Gallery. Nice. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Bill is a great uh, connector in that I met him at Naropa. And while I was at Naropa, after Naropa, I did get a job afterwards. And uh, it was one. Of, it was my first art job at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And around that time, Bill's wife, uh, Constance Llewellyn, great curator, was putting together uh, a retrospective of Joe Brainerd, who is oh, a writer yeah. and oh. collage artist. Mm-hmm. I happened to be making collage that's, I was about, around that time when I was making, starting to make collages on my own and not calling myself a visual artist whatsoever. I was just uh, using images to make poetry. And um, we didn't have anyone running the museum at the time. We were in search of an executive director and I had been at the gallery or at the uh, museum long enough that I was uh, tasked to oversee the Joe Brenner show with Connie uh, in Boulder. And so here I am, you know, full circle, arts professional, collage artist, working with Connie and Bill and the work of Joe Brainerd. I mean, what an absolute amazing, amazing privilege. I think I was 28 years old at the time. And, um, yeah, and I would say, you know, there's not a lot of people 
uh, my mentors that I would call friends from those days. Uh, but Bill definitely became uh, a friend, and uh, he put himself on the, the same you know the same level as everyone else, uh, being good friends with Philip Gustin, to all of his uh, students, uh, Devonder Barnhart, uh, really like diverse, amazing dude. Brilliant. Well, Mitch, Michael. Thanks for joining us on The People. Thank you guys so much. Thank Thanks you so. guys. Yeah, yeah this is fun. You've been listening to The People in Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching the iTunes store for The People Radio. And then you can find our podcast there. You can rate it. You can review it. You can subscribe to it. And yes, and please do all three of those things. Do all those things. And then otherwise you can find us at insertblancpress.net. Click on the people at the top of the page and you'll find all of the past shows there. And you can also find us on Stitcher or SoundCloud or basically anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Facebook. And remember to like us like there. Like us on if, Facebook. If you like us. And uh, our theme music, as always, is the song Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out with a song slash audio collage from Los Angeles musician Jeremy Kennedy. You can find more of his work on Bandcamp at fmsmprc.bandcamp.com. He's also editor and publisher of Rebel Hands Press, and you should check out what he gets up to over there at rebelhandspress.com. And we're going to play an audio DJST from Studio Table Blue, and the name of the track is Let Them Eat Paste. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't know, I'm driving. Here, talk to Jeremy. Hello? Yeah. You know what? I don't freeze! Get out of me! Thank you.
casual we'll start that again and this is how it goes it goes like this <clears throat> you can rate the review rate the review you can rate the review god fucking we were all good